Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Dara. And I'm Rad Miller. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in September in our Cosmic Diary. So when looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you achieve night vision. Do allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when you're stargazing. And if you are using a star app on your phone, switch on the red night vision mode. Now on the morning of the 2nd, look towards the east to spot Mars beside Mercury and the star Regulus. It's the brightest star in the constellation of Leo. Now they will be quite faint, so be sure to have a good look before sunrise. The moon will reach its full moon phase on the morning of the 6th of September. Now parts of the moon which are struck by the sun's light can actually reach 120 degrees Celsius. And the far side of the moon, which isn't lit up by the sun, can dip to minus 150 degrees Celsius. Jupiter will be only 3 degrees north of the star Spica on the evening of the 10th of September. Look towards the western sky as the sun sets and if you have a good pair of binoculars or a telescope, you may be able to see the four Galilean moons called Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto. Mercury will be at its greatest western elongation on the morning of the 12th. Now this means that from our perspective, Mercury is as far west from the sun as it can be and it will now start to move eastwards and it will appear to get closer to the sun. So this is the best time to look for this rather faint planet. Look towards the east before sunrise. And by the evening of the 12th, the moon will be beside Aldebaran in its waning gibbous phase. Now, Aldebaran is an old red giant star, and it's 40 times wider than our sun. If it was placed at the centre of our solar system, its surface would actually extend halfway to Mercury. Now, look higher up in the eastern sky, and you may also be able to spot an open cluster of stars called the Pleiades. On a clear night, you should be able to spot seven points of light, so they're often called the Seven Sisters. After the major Perseids meteor shower in August, there is comparatively less meteor activity this month. We do have the Alpha Aurigids, which is a minor meteor shower whose primary peak occurs on the 15th. There's a very low hourly meteor rate, uh, we expect roughly around 10 per hour, but they are bright and relatively easy to photograph. Head out after midnight and view the meteor shower with just your eyes. They can be seen all over the sky, but they'll appear to radiate from the constellation of Auriga in the east. Now on the morning of the 18th, there will be a five-member spectacle to view in the sky. You'll have to be up before sunrise to see Venus, the star Regulus, the very thin waning crescent moon, Mars and Mercury all appearing to line up diagonally in the east. We reach the autumnal equinox on the evening of the 22nd. This is when the sun crosses the celestial equator, that's the Earth's equator, extended out into space. And on this day, night and day is of approximately equal length. Going forward, we will have fewer hours of daylight compared to darkness. And then on the early evening of the 25th, have a look for the moon beside the red star Antares in the southwest. And on the following night, it will have moved to nestle beside Saturn. Now, if you do take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to ROG Astronomers. And a big thank you to our work experience student, Ria Mehta, who helped us with our cosmic diary this month. But now for our cosmic news.
Okay, welcome to our cosmic news for September. Um, so in this section of the podcast, both me and Dara uh, talk about our favorite news stories of the month. Um, and we have to give a big thank you to one of our work experience students, Grace Oswald, for choosing the stories that we have today. Okay, Dara, tell us well, what's been happening. I think Grace has picked out a lovely story for me. Uh, she's picked out a story about the asteroid called Apophis. Okay, now this asteroid has mm. been monitored since 2004, but recently uh, scientists have kind of rejigged and refound the probability of it colliding with the Earth. So this is why this asteroid is such a big thing. So asteroids in general are stray pieces of rock, basically, uh, that didn't quite form another planet when the other planets were forming. And most of the asteroids uh, orbit around the Sun in the main asteroid belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. But you can find stray asteroids all over our solar system, the ones that have kind of been kicked out, no longer liked by the main asteroid members. And those are the ones we've got to keep a beady eye on, right? Especially those ones, yeah, because those ones could potentially uh, impact the Earth. Uh, so when they first found it in 2004, they calculated there was a 2.7% chance that this asteroid would hit the Earth on April the 13th in the year 2029. So that's a 1 in 36 chance. That's a huge probability. Yeah, yeah. Um, but after more observations and estimates, they actually eliminated the chance of any collision in 2029. But because this asteroid uh, orbits the sun, it's going to make a return journey back close to uh, the Earth. So up until 2006, it was thought that uh, as this uh, asteroid called Apophis would pass close to the Earth again uh, in that 2029, seven years later, it would return near back to the Earth. And this could actually result in an impact then in 2036. So to start off with, they were like, well, there's going to be a collision in 2029. Realized, actually, there isn't any chance of that. But as the asteroid uh, comes close to the Earth in 2029, the gravitational pull of the Earth might change its orbit a little bit. Oh, no. So as it comes back around seven years later, there could be a potential impact. Uh, but lo and behold, they ruled this out too. Oh, Why? Uh, so again, uh, predictions and estimations of its orbit mean that it's highly unlikely that it's uh, going to collide with the Earth. But the breaking news this month is that we can't exclude uh, that it will ever impact the Earth. So there is a possibility and the chance they've actually put down is one in a hundred thousand so everyone that was like uh we're gonna get blown away by an mm. asteroid don't worry uh, it's not actually gonna happen uh, the next time it actually comes back around the earth after 2029 and after 2036 will be in the year 2068 so we've got a couple of decades to go and that's where they've said the odds of impact are about one in a hundred thousand mm -hmm. so they've recalculated them but just a little bit about this asteroid, because it has been uh, a part of scientific inquiry for a while. It's about 370 meters wide. Uh, so that was estimated from its brightness. You can actually see some of the asteroids on a very dark night from, from their brightness. An impact, if it did, would actually devastate the size uh, of a region of Texas. So one of the largest states in the US, if it collided with the Earth, that's yeah. how much devastation it would actually well, it's, cause. It's more likely that it, if it does collide, it will land in the sea or it will land in some kind of desert 
uninhabited area. I mean, right? most most of the Earth we is oceans, um, mm. but that doesn't exclude any effects. I mean, if it lands in the oceans, we could possibly get tsunamis affecting yeah. loads of coastal regions as well. So not a pretty thing. Uh, and we call it a near-Earth object because uh, its orbit brings it uh, close enough to the Earth. By definition, a near-Earth object is a solar system body whose closest approach brings it less than 1.3 astronomical units to the sun. Right. So an astronomical unit is the distance between the Earth and the sun on average, about 150 million kilometers. So the Earth is one AU from the sun. A near-Earth object is basically anything that is 1.3 astronomical units from the sun or closer. So it's basically think, in the think about it, like 150 million kilometres sounds like a huge, huge, huge distance, but that, that's what we classify as a near-Earth object. It's basically because uh, it orbits in the same vicinity as the Earth does. Right. Uh, so that's why it is. And they have, these near-Earth objects have very chaotic orbits, and that's why they have to be monitored. Um, and they're monitored using things like radar. Mm-hmm. So because they're very cold objects, they emit very low energy light, uh, ra- uh, radio waves and mm-hmm. radar, so we can detect them. And as I mentioned, some asteroids are large enough that they are bright enough to be seen on a very dark sky. Mm-hmm. And we can uh, monitor them on a background of fixed stars. So if you have uh, a fixed sky and you see an object kind of moving day to day, it's probably likely to be an asteroid there. And they actually uh, predict that there's about uh, 1,800 potentially hazardous asteroids in space. These are space rocks that are basically 100 meters or larger. And none of them, thankfully, are on a collision path with the Earth as they know of yet. But it's really important to monitor these asteroids. And there's one that actually was kind of missed back in 2013, if you remember. The one that uh, hit um, the little small village town, that's it, in Russia. Uh, that asteroid was only 20 metres wide. Very, very small compared to the asteroids we're talking about. But it exploded about. in the atmosphere. Yes, right? it, so it did. it didn't actually hit the surface. No. But, but that explosion, that shockwave caused, caused devastation, well, devastation exactly. across the village. Um, and the reason it uh, kind of exploded in the atmosphere, it came in at a very shallow angle. So it had to travel through more of the Earth's atmosphere and it kind of oh, broke apart as right. it did. But the reason they kind of missed that one was because it was quite small and also it came from the direction of the sun. And if you're trying to monitor from the direction, it, yeah. you know, you're very unlikely to be able to spot it. And then we all know of the uh, potential asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs yeah. 65 million years ago. Uh, they estimate, but it is still contended, that that asteroid would have been about 10 kilometers wide. So oh, a huge asteroid wow. there as well. Um, so if you ever wanted to find out about asteroids, yeah. uh, NASA are actually tracking them and they've got a website where you can go and look up data from these asteroids. So the US Congress, they actually officially ordered uh, NASA, with the help from amateur astronomers, to locate all near-Earth objects that are 140 meters wide or even larger. Uh, and they've basically created a census of these asteroids on the Minor Planet Center. So you can visit the website, it's minorplanetcenter.net, mm-hmm. and it will tell you about every single asteroid that they found. Mm-hmm. It will give you information about their size, if they have it, their speed, um, and it basically is a collection of everything they found out about asteroids, and you can actually find out Can you adopt one? <laughs> I mean, I think it's already got a name and it's probably already taken by the people uh, that found them. But hey, I mean, you can find out all about the potential asteroids. This is my near Earth asteroid. <laughs> Don't look at it. <laughs> so, lastly, to think about is uh, why asteroids are important and future missions. Um, so, NASA are actually developing the first ever robotic mission to visit a large near Earth asteroid. 
They're planning to go to this asteroid, mm. collect a one-ton boulder from its surface, so yeah. just a small part, and actually redirect it back towards the moon and get it into a stable orbit around the moon. And that's so humans can actually go and explore these asteroids without having to go too far out uh, from the Earth. And also to prepare them for uh, long kind of missions uh, when we're thinking about sending people to Mars. So getting them used to kind of spaceflight experience. And also asteroids contain so much material and that material could be very helpful to us when we're visiting other planets or even for space flight. So they contain things like uh, oxygen, silicon, some contain hydrocarbons, others contain metals like gold and platinum. Uh, so you might want to mine for those. Um, but we could actually possibly uh, use some of these materials to help us create fuel, uh, like a refueling station in space that might help us on our longer missions. That's one of the biggest challenges of trying to get to a distant world or a planet and come back is just not being able to carry the fuel to do it. So some nice missions that NASA have got planned, uh, all in the hope that uh, we'll be able to prepare ourselves for the first human space flights to Mars in the 2030s. So something to look out for in the next decades or so. Wow! So we've gone from possible death of the Earth to human exploration and yeah. asteroids could be really good for us. Exactly. That's... And you never know, Apophis, unlikely to hit the Earth, but another asteroid could turn up tomorrow mm. uh, that we found and is on, a, on its way to the Earth. But that's the thing, I mean, that, that's what engineers and scientists are working on, is how to deflect these asteroids and protect the Earth. And it also does go a long way to showing people sometimes ask, you know, what's the, why, why do we research space? Why do we look at the stars? Why do we look at objects in space? Part of it is to, to protect us here on the Earth and yeah. to look out and to make sure that we can survive and thrive here on our planet too. Cool, that's a brilliant story. All right, Rad, you're going to hit me with your belter of a new story this yeah. month. Yeah, right. So, uh, my story is all about computers in space. Well, yeah. computers? Computers in space. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so relatively recently, uh, on the uh, 15th of August, you may have heard of SpaceX. Yes. Which is a private company, and they are working on reusable rockets. So these rockets launch things up into space and then come back down to Earth and don't crash, right? So it's just to make it more economical, more efficient, more, I guess, environmentally friendly. So all of these things. Um, and so they have a $1.6 billion contract with NASA. And so they have a contract uh, to supply the International Space Station with cargo. Okay, so it's like uh, your uh, kind of, you know, these supermarket delivery services, but it's that for the Ocado or Morrison's. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, but for the ISS. And so they do deliver cargo up to the ISS and the, um, the, the ship is called Dragon. That's the, the, the little capsule that, that takes their ice cream and their apples and their coffee machines and anything else that they want up to the ISS. But in August, on top of all of that, um, and it's about 3,000 kilograms of stuff goes into this capsule. Wow. Part of that were two um, computers called Spaceborne computers. Now, they're about the size of um, pizza boxes. And uh, the reason why they're going up, well, they're... They're not really going to be used for anything useful. It's just to see how well they fare in high radiation environments. So these computers are going to be up there for a year. And there's a lot of radiation up 
uh, above the atmosphere of the sure. International Space Station. And that can affect uh, the electric circuits, electrical circuits inside these computers. So they want to see how resistant their technology is. Now, the reason why they're doing that is because, um, well, they want to supply very hardy, very resistant computers for people, as you mentioned earlier, who might go to Mars. On longer right? voyages, On yeah, a long sure. six-month voyage, you know, will their computer resist that? Because there's only so much you can do um, from Earth. And if you think about, uh, if you're on a journey to another planet, the signal time, the signal delay is a big problem. So if there's a, a mission critical situation and you need to solve it in real time, you don't have time to send a 15 minute signal to NASA, wait for them to process that, to send another 15 minute signal, that's going to take way too, too long. Much time. So you need a computer on board to help you deal with potentially dangerous um, situations. Now it's kind of analogous to uh, the astronaut Scott Kelly, NASA astronaut, who spent a year on the International Space Station uh, simply from a physiological point of view to see how the radiation levels would affect his immune system, his white blood cell count, how it would affect his body. Um, And he is a twin, right? So he has a terrestrial (laughs) twin called Mark Kelly. So Mark Kelly stayed on the Earth while Scott Kelly was up on the space station. So a nice control to compare him to. Absolutely, yeah. So this is the computer version of those two. I see, okay. Okay, so now, but usually uh, when computers are sent up into space with rovers or spacecraft, they are protected within uh, a a thick kind of metal container, such as titanium, uh, with walls up to a centimetre thick. Uh, This computer doesn't have that metal cage, um, but it will be water-cooled, and also they have designed resistant software so what will happen is that this computer might run a bit slower than normal so that if errors accumulate it has time to to solve those and errors and them. keep yeah and keep oh, running very smart um smoothly um so it's going to be really interesting to see <laughs> what kind of state it's in when it's returned back to earth hopefully it'll, re- it'll be returned safely as well and doesn't crash and in the ocean can you imagine like that, that after a year after of being a... up there and just on its descent just before they get it all back it's, really, it's very possible. Well, sometimes the astronauts don't get their food on time, you know, because the, the capsule just crashes into I the I wouldn't ocean be a happy astronaut, so, I no, wouldn't. absolutely not. So it's all these things you need to consider. Um, so, okay, a little bit about computers. Just want to, first of all, talk about um, Voyager, actually. But before, even before Voyager, which was launched in the late 1970s, we have, well, the first computers in space. The first computers that went into space were were launched in the early 1960s. Now, NASA, as a space agency, started in 1958, and they had a computer, very basic, very simple computer down on Earth. And the other thing is, well, you might think, okay, if you're going to send a computer into space, it needs to be the very latest computer with the very latest innovative technology. Not necessarily. In the early 1960s, when NASA were building their manned spacecraft, they actually went for slightly older but very well tested, very robust, very robust see, yeah. computers. Makes okay. more sense, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. You want something that is reliable. reliable. Also, they did practice with a more innovative kind of technology for their unmanned spacecraft. They they were more willing to use the very latest technology to take a chance 
to see how that would fare in space as well. Um, then moving on to the late 1970s, uh, the Voyager uh, spacecraft, there were two of those. Uh, one of them explored the outer solar system and the other uh, is now actually the furthest spacecraft that we have. Um, it's reaching interstellar space. It's over 40 years old. And uh, these spacecraft are now roughly 19 billion kilometers away. They have computers on board. So, for example, Voyager 1 has a computer that's over 40 years old, right? Now, on Earth, um, you are, it's recommended that after three years, you change your computer, don't you? you? Update it, yeah. 40 years old, and it's still going, okay? It's not as good as it was, but it's still going. Um, and just to give you a comparison with modern day computers, right? So their computers are capable of executing 81,000 instructions per second, which sounds like a lot. However, the smartphone in your pocket is capable of achieving speeds of seven and a half thousand times that of the Voyager computers. So they're, they're seven and a half thousand times faster than Voyager. And that's in your pocket that's compared your to, pocket. yeah. I mean, it's been a 40, 40 years of, of, of technology um, progress. Uh, they can transmit, the Voyager computers can transmit their data back to Earth at 160 bits per second. In comparison, a slow internet dial-up connection, you know, the old ones, yeah. can deliver at least 20,000 bits per second. All right, Gosh, so. this is an ancient computer, but it just shows it's still working and it's still doing... It's still working. Well, it's in a very cold environment. That really helps, actually, to conserve uh, the computer. Uh, the other thing, because they're so far away now, 19 billion kilometres, that signal that comes back to Earth gets kind of spread out, diluted. So they emit a signal that has a power of 22 watts. By the time it reaches Earth, um, the, the huge 70-meter antennae that NASA use to, to hear that signal um, is down to 0.1 billion billionth of a watt. That's how much they receive on Earth because so much of it has been diluted once it travels that, that huge, huge journey. So it's not going to be long now, I guess, until Voyager is, you know, far enough away that its signal is so diluted that we're going to struggle to, yeah, to receive yeah. a signal from absolutely, it. Absolutely, absolutely. So they think that both spacecraft will continue to collect data and continue to beam that data back, um, possibly until 2025. All right, so eight years from now. But, uh, but the other thing is their batteries are running out. They've got radioactive batteries. They're running out. Um, so there you go. So that's the, the Voyager computers been going for 40 years. It's absolutely amazing. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention, actually, was um, the kinds of experiments that are going up in, in the cargo ship um, alongside these computers, these uh, new supercomputers, because that's what the astronauts do on board the ISS. They carry out lots of different experiments for scientists all over the world. So one of the experiments that they're going to do is um, looking at protein crystals that are responsible for Parkinson's disease. So this is going to be a huge... And, and they also want to see how these protein crystals grow in a microgravity environment. So that's going to be really interesting. Um, also, they're going to be carrying out a stem cell investigation for growing new lung tissue. Ooh. Wow, so these stem cells are cells that can turn into any other cell in the body. And they've got equipment for growing vegetables in space. Yay, new food on the International Absolutely. Space Station and even beyond. So that's what it is. It's an orbiting laboratory um, to test physiological effects, to help uh, medicine move forwards. But not just that, to prepare people for future exploration. 
Um, lastly, the one last thing I want to say, what about the future? Okay, well, autonomous technology using computers is the future. Uh, it's already happening now. There are two little rovers called Spirit and Opportunity on Mars. They're called the Mars Exploration Rovers. Um, they've been up there since about 2003. Uh, now, Spirit is now dead. Unfortunately. It's, I know. So it's solar panels got covered in, in dust. Um, but Opportunity is still going. And Opportunity does have a computer on board that allows it to make autonomous decisions. So reacting to its surroundings. Reacting to its surroundings. Um, so it is receiving instructions from the Earth, but then there are certain things that it does autonomously. And there's also the ESA ExoMars rover, which is due to land in 2021. It'll also be piloted mostly from the Earth. But once um, it has a certain set of instructions, for example, looking for drilling locations, because that's the great thing about ExoMars, it's going to be able to drill two meters under the surface to look for potential microbes. That's more than Curiosity is doing. I think it's a couple of centimeters into the soil. Curiosity, yeah, it's not great. But this one, two meters, is really going to look for uh, reservoirs of water, but also, you know, potentially microbes. Um, and and those that when it starts drilling, that will be done autonomously in real time. So it can do it really quickly. So there you go. That's How the exciting. future of space computers. Pretty amazing. Oh, what an amazing story, Rad. And lots of different things linked in together in the sure. history of spacecraft as well and how it's actually showing that technology is advancing so fast yeah. that if, I think new things are going to become possible that we haven't even dreamed of yet. Absolutely. I think it's um, it, it's really important to highlight, as you mentioned in the past, that, that astronomy is very multidisciplinary and um, space missions require the efforts of people um, from, from all fields, from all areas, particularly engineering, computer science. It's very, very important to have these guys on board um, to make these missions successful and to move things forward. And there are always, always practical spin-offs for people on the Earth, always. So your smartphone might benefit from this autonomous technology. One day, on yes, Mars. it will. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of our cosmic news section. Uh, I hope you guys have a good time sky watching. And until the next time, bye. Bye.